Thank you so much for joining me for episode three of the Shorter Speaks With podcast. My name is Shorter Dunbar and hope everyone is well. And this week I am joined by champion boxer turned cognitive therapist Hazel Gale. Now, Hazel originally appeared on my other podcast, the Adventure Games podcast, to talk about her text game app Betwixt. But she gave some great, great advice on how we can look after our mental health and she... Uh, had some great stories about her time as a champion boxer and how she came. She went from being a boxer to being a cognitive therapist. So that is why I've included this on this podcast as well. And hopefully people will enjoy it and this can help people as well. She also gave some great advice about looking after ourselves and our mental health during lockdown and other difficult periods in our life. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Hazel Gale. Please enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm here with uh, champion boxer turned cognitive therapist Hazel Gale. Uh, hello, Hazel. How are you? I'm very well. And yourself? I'm doing very well, thanks. We're here to talk about, uh, well, we're talk, here to talk about your career and your game that, you, uh, that you're making called Betwixt, which I'm looking forward to finding out more about and um so i was wondering if you could uh start because as i said uh, you're a champion boxer turned cognitive therapist which is not something i've I come across every day <laughs> um so and you've done a lot um so i was wondering first of all uh, before we get talking about your uh therapist sessions that you do is uh i wonder if you could tell us uh, how did you get into boxing if you wouldn't mind letting us know I I have such a such a ridiculous answer to that question. I actually started as a kickboxer, so I, I was competing as a kickboxer and boxer for, for about ten years. Um, I got into kickboxing because I followed a guy that I fancied into a dojo, <laughs> and, um, and I really didn't think I was going to enjoy. It. I was actually he was my flatmate actually, and he he said you kept trying to get me to to join a class, and I kept saying look I'm not interested in this. I'm far more interested in staying up all night smoking a load of cigarettes and getting drunk and talking about nothing. Um, uh, but eventually he got me down there. And within 15 minutes, I was completely hooked. You know, I was, it, was, it was like a whole new world opened up ahead of me. Um, and, and of course, the way I got into therapy is because I burnt out horribly due to over-enthusiasm and completely the wrong mindset and then putting pressure on myself in all the wrong ways um, as a fighter when I started to compete, especially at the international level. So... Um, I needed to visit a therapist to get myself back onto my feet and back into the ring. And that's how I found cognitive hypnotherapy, which is what I practice these days. Oh, no, that's a, that's a really good answer to start. So you followed this guy that you, that you fancied and then you became a champion boxer. That's, uh, that's uh, yeah. inspiration for all of us. <laughs> Moral of the story. <laughs> Just, yeah, follow anyone you fancy into any room and uh, something amazing might happen. Yeah. <laughs> and in this case, something very positive happened. Um, but, uh, and how long were you a boxer, if you don't mind me asking? So you started with kickboxing, as you mentioned, and then you became a boxer. And how long did, did, you, uh, did you do boxing then? It was about five years in each. So I, I achieved a couple of world titles and a European title in kickboxing. And then I moved over to boxing for a number of reasons. Um, but really, they're, they're very similar. The hands are basically exactly the same. I just stopped kicking, partly because I had a bad back, actually, and then some other reasons as well. But um, uh, five years boxing. Um, and I, I, I won a couple of national titles as, as a boxer. Um, in fact, the... The, I, think, I think I won three national titles. I'm not sure if my last one was a national title or not. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Um, but the penultimate fight is one that I talk about very often because I, I struggled through my burnout for, for years. You know, once, once your body's gone, you don't just fix your mind and then suddenly feel better. You know, your body takes a long time to catch up. And if I'm totally honest, it never fully caught up. Um, but I managed to, you know, learn how to set my boundaries, to learn how to understand my warning signs, learn how to read my emotions and pay them some attention, which I wasn't doing at the beginning. And as a result of that, I could continue fighting, um, uh, even though I was still struggling with, with chronic fatigue and, and, and the, uh, the hangovers, or the various hangovers in my um, burnout. Um, but the, 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 last fight I, the last fight I really, really remember in, in clear detail was in 2013, December of 2013. By that point, I was back to fighting, but I, this was the first fight after the burnout that actually 
felt like a completely different thing. I remember I was, war I was warming up to, to fight and I was just really present. Um, I was listening to the song of the skipping rope as it was whistles, whistled past my ears and I was watching everybody sitting around me in the warm-up room, you know, towels draped over their faces, looking anxious. And I just knew that something felt different inside me. When I walked out to fight that day, it was as if the crowd had been hushed by a crisp layer of freshly fallen snow. And there was this stillness in my mind that was interrupted solely by a curious little voice that says, I've got this. And I knew in that moment that it wasn't that I had some kind of blown up ego fueled, you know, determination to win. It was just that I knew that I deserved the victory if I got it. And there was this subtle difference to just making me feel like I was allowed to be there really. When I, I had that fight, it was against us, against the Southpaw. And I, up until that point, if I'd looked across the ring and seen my opponent was standing in Southpaw, it would have been, you know, a heart sinking moment, but I just sort of shook it off. And, and the fight was tough. The girl could hit, hit hard. I took some big shots, but as the, as we exchanged punches, my, my belief in myself, I guess, grew stronger. And I started to work it out. I actually remember this point. I threw a fake jab and she ducked underneath it and walked straight into my right hand. And I remember thinking, Oh, I didn't know where that came from. That was good. And about 20 seconds later, it happened again. And then it happened again. And then it happened again. It was, I was in flow state. Um, really for the first time for any prolonged period of time while I was fighting. But the real difference was at the end. So when my hand was raised in victory at the end of that fight, um, I was filled with a surge of alien emotion. I, I'm still not sure if that was happiness or pride or just a good old fashioned sense of achievement, but it was new. See, the fights I'd had up until then, when my hand had been raised, I can look back and tell you that what I'd done was drop my head, avert my eyes, I'd felt shame upon winning up until that point. This time, because of the work that I'd done and because of the struggle I'd been through, I could finally own the victory. And so it changed everything. But I, ironically, instead of being like, that was the beginning of my boxing career, that was actually the end of my boxing career. Because along with that change, I realized I didn't need to prove anything. I didn't need, I didn't need to be this tough guy that I'd been trying to be to prove that I wasn't weak, which was what that whole thing was about for me. I, I, I realized looking back, so I had one more fight after that, and then I quit, and then I qualified to be a therapist. Um, well, actually, I was already qualifying at that point. Uh, and my life changed a lot. Yes, I swapped hitting people in the face to, to helping people, and <laughs> it was better. <laughs> Again, another, another great, great story there, because you, you, know, you mentioned that towards the end of your boxing career was when you really felt uh, you know, proud of your achievements, because what was interesting is after all your achievements in boxing that you were... Uh, you know, you mentioned you won all these titles and, uh, you know, probably from the outside, we probably see you that, you know, think, oh, you're you know, very confident now you're winning all these titles, but that you said you put your head down in shame. Uh, was it because of your discovery of cognitive hypnotherapy that you felt like this? Um, do you think after you discovered that, do you think that that, you know, was that the reason why uh, you felt, you know, proud and at this moment towards the end? Or is there multiple factors maybe? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was cognitive hypnotherapy that got there. But what, what I'd actually done, I'd faced what I now call, you know, in my book, I call books called The Mind Monster Solution. What I'd done over those years of, of recovering, uh, what I'd had to do to recover was face my monster. So when I say monster, I really just mean shame and fear and all of those horrible stories we tell about ourselves. And for me, you know, I had this, I was so resistant to the idea of appearing weak. I'd grown up as a tomboy, my, you know, I was a daddy's girl. My dad was a sporty athletic man. I'd learned very early on that I was strong, physically strong and fast. And this became the way that I, you know, interacted with the world. I wanted, you know, I, I would get praise from my father when I won the races and therefore I wanted to win all the races. And what caused me to burn out was pushing myself way too hard because I was so afraid of losing. And I'm not just talking about in the fights. I mean, I can remember you know, feeling surge of panic because I could realize I was about to lose a press-up competition with my training partner at the gym, which sounds ludicrous looking back. But that's how I was living my life. I was in fight or flight the entire time because I was so afraid of being found out as, as weak and inferior, you know, sort of penetrable, weak thing that, that I was so determined to prove that I wasn't. Um, so for, I had to crash in order to take a proper mm. look at where, where I was going wrong. And I know lots of people have to crash in order to, to, to actually do that. Unfortunately, it's definitely not, you know, a prerequisite, but um, for me, that was that way. And 
and yeah, I had to face my fear and get real about that stuff. And of course, when you do face it, it's not monstrous at all. Mm. Um, and it's not true. And all of the resistance was for nothing. Um, but that process, it just, it changed my value system. It changed my idea of self. It changed how I interacted with people. And yes, it, it meant that I didn't need to prove myself in that way anymore. I mean, I, I think I can relate. I mean, obviously for people who know me, I am not a boxer. I have never been a boxer. You just need to look at me to know that say, if I go into boxing ring, probably with you, you'd knock me out in seconds. So, but I can relate kind of psychologically because when I was doing my exams here in called Leaving Cert, which is like the, I think the, the, the um, GCSEs over in the UK, the final exams, I was pushing myself kind of through the studies. So I was really trying to, you know, you mentioned how you were pushing yourself, you know, with push-ups. I was pushing myself through my studies to try and also, because I felt if I do badly with, in my exams, I'll be, you know, to be shameful. That, and I always got decent grades, but if I do badly, then I'll be letting myself and my family and just everyone I know down. Now, really, you know, looking back, it's like, do, does it really matter, some of them? But, you know, at the time, you think this is the most important thing. And what happened to me was, you talk about a crash. I got sick because I got not one, but two uh, pneumothoraxes, which I don't know if you're, you know, probably boxing or aware, like two collapsed lungs. And now this is, yeah. a lot of it was down to stress. And so I realized, I was still very young, I was 17, and I realized then, oh, I need to change myself, I need to change my outlook, my mentality, and just realize what's important, what's not important, and as you mentioned, not being on this fight or flight all the time, like, because what I, I remember I told my mother, when I'm not studying, I feel guilty. Now, I didn't study all the time, but I said, when I'm not studying, I feel really guilty, and I just could not relax, and she said that she was very worried at the time. And this is what happened. Thankfully, it wasn't anything more serious. But I realized then, okay, I, I really need to change myself as well. So I can relate kind of, I think, with you that I did kind of change my own outlook a little bit going, okay, is this really important? I mean, if I get a, a C1 instead of a B plus in mathematics, is that really? <laughs> and if I don't do well, I can always do it again. <laughs> so... I think everybody, I think the reason I wanted to write a book about that was because I think everyone can relate because everyone has had that kind of battle with something they can't see. I think exactly. everybody does. We, we, we get so used to fixating on the one thing that we think is going to make us feel okay. So we're like, so I don't feel like I'm good enough right now, but if I can just get that, for some people mm. that will be a qualification, for other people it will be a dress size or, you know, a, a size of muscles or a certain appearance or a certain partner or a certain car or whatever. Meaning if I can just get that thing, then I'll feel okay. But then we get it and we don't feel any better because of course the car or the dress size or the qualification was never the thing. So we go, all right, so obviously that wasn't good enough. Now I need this next one. And we can push ourselves to the absolute limit as I did. And it sounds like you did exactly the same, chasing after something in exactly the wrong way. And what we really need to do in those moments is stop and turn around and realize that this monster that we think is chasing us, um, which has a story. For me, it was, I'm weak. Um, it, with a sort of search for qualifications, it's likely to be, you know, a fear of being naive or stupid or whatever. Mm. If we turn around and look at that thing, we realize it is just a fear. It's not a truth. And that's when the change happens because then we can see ourselves differently. Yeah, d definitely. I think for me, it was a fear of failure, <laughs> yeah. which is, uh, you know, and again, letting people down, which I believe you mentioned in your book as well. Uh, but then you think, you, you know, you're not letting your, you know, people down if, you know, you don't really achieve because hopefully people will still, you know, love you and accept you, um, you know, because of who you are. Not <laughs> well, that's the thing. The irony is that they love and accept you more when you can be real about that stuff, because most people will know that one super arrogant guy who just seems to be so, I say guy because it often is a guy, not only a guy, <laughs> but who just seems to be so full of himself, you know, so confident. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that, that there is, most people are, are working out of fear. They are, they are working from a sense of inferiority. And all of that bravado and the, the, the persona that we put on over the front of it, which is meant to make us look like what we think we should be, it's actually quite repellent. When that guard gets dropped and we can be real and we can say out loud, you know, I'm, quite, I'm afraid right now or I'm nervous right now or whatever it is that we're afraid to admit to, those are the moments that people realize who we are feel accepted themselves and can love us mm. 
Yeah, definitely. Because I mean, we could spend hours talking about toxic masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> that, um, that you know, you just need to go online on Twitter, or whatever, and you just see. And I just think, oh my God, the world is ending. You know, but thankfully, hopefully not. You know, th- these are the minority of people. But then do you think, what sort of fears do they have that they have to behave like this? But um, but yeah. um, but anyway, then you mentioned cognitive. You you went into cognitive hypnotherapy. I suppose the question that I have then is very simply, what what is cognitive hypnotherapy? Yeah. <laughs> because I feel like you know I should know these two words or what this is. But then for anybody listening, um, what can you? How can you explain what cognitive hypnotherapy is? to somebody who's never heard of it, basically like me. <laughs> well, yeah, most people haven't heard of it because it's quite niche. Um, it's, so it, it's hard to explain briefly. The first thing I should probably say is what it isn't. So people hear the word hypnotherapy or just hypno anything, and they start to envisage swinging pocket watches and you know, people who put you under and suddenly your consciousness is removed and you're basically in a automaton under their control and none of that happens obviously that doesn't happen that's not real um what cognitive hypnotherapy is is an amalgamative approach which uses different tools and techniques from a range of different therapy styles including talk therapy so you'll see some of it will feel like regular counseling and psychotherapy other parts of it will feel like cbt cognitive behavioral therapy which is a very sort of practical conscious um uh, modality and then there's the hypno part of it which it, which for me, the best way of describing that is it means you bring your imagination into it. So I'm, I think that change happens when people's imaginations are engaged. Um, and that goes for people who are really consider themselves imaginative or creative and also people who don't. You know, we, we don't solve our problems when we're stuck in a way of doing things. That's, that's basically what any, the state that anyone's in when they walk through the therapy room. They're like, they don't say, oh, something just popped up. They come in and they say, I don't know why I keep doing this. Every single time I do this or every time I feel this way, I'm, I, I don't understand it and I'm hating myself more and more. I don't know why I drink too much. I don't know why I shout at my partner in that way. I don't know why I'm pushing people away because it's become this repetitive habit. Now here's a, a thing about humans, which is in equal measure, hilarious and, and frightening at the same time, is that when, we, when we're trying to do something and it doesn't work, instead of automatically thinking, okay, that doesn't work, what else can I do? We just do the same thing again, only harder. Right? So there's a brilliant study done once with a group of people who are incentivized with money to walk through a door. Sounds simple enough. So of course they said, yes, please, I'll be a part of this. Then they walked up to the door and tried to open it and couldn't. They tried turning the handle and pulling. They tried turning the handle and pushing harder and harder and harder until eventually, I think the study was done with a small amount of people. And I think nobody managed to open the door. Um, what the experimenters had done was built a door with the handle on the wrong side, which I, by which I mean the handle was over near the hinge instead of the side of the door that actually opens. So if the, anybody had thought, okay, the handle isn't working here, what else can I do to open a door? If they just put their fingers in the crack at the other side of the door, they would have been able to open it very easily. Nobody thought of it because they're all too busy doing their normal door opening strategy, which wasn't working. And we're doing, that's what we're doing the whole time. You know, for me, it was, I don't feel good enough. So I just need to prove myself by being stronger, faster, fitter, you know, every single time I go to the training session every, or, and all in relation to whoever it is I'm sparring, which is a nightmare when you're sparring 90 kilo men. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I was, I, mean, I broke my leg sparring a 90 kilo guy, actually might have been even a hundred kilo, kicked his arm, broke my leg. That was obviously devastating because then I couldn't train. I couldn't even walk. Um, things I like that were happening, but I, well. didn't, I didn't at any point think, okay, how else could I make myself feel good about myself? I just thought, right, got to get this healed so I can get back to training immediately. Yeah, God, no, that's uh, oh, that sounds awful, actually. That, uh, yeah, I mean, also it must have hurt physically as well. <laughs> that was the worst pain I've ever been through. It was only a fracture, but because it was only a fracture, the doctors didn't see it on the X-ray. So they assumed it must be ligament damage. And I was like, I can't put any weight on it at all. And they said, well, you know, you can have these, they begrudgingly gave me some crutches. Um, and eight months later, it still wasn't healed. So I went and made, paid an enormous amount of money to a private doctor who did an MRI scan and said, okay, so good news and bad news. Good news is it isn't the nerve damage we thought it might be. The bad news is you've been walking around on a broken leg for eight months. Ah, oh, ow. I mean, that, I'm just in pain listening today hearing that and wow oh wow so well i mean you, you said that you 
felt you know weak i think i could say that at, at, you know that you seem to be very strong if you're walking around on a broken leg for eight months that that is what more than a lot of other people can you know can withstand but no, no. Uh, actually there's a point in that so the one thing yes, I, I find ahead. myself saying to clients often you know we, the story this i'm weak story you know often those things are often called limiting beliefs and like limiting beliefs are never true but on top of that they seem to be the most absurd things right so if if somebody comes to therapy with a limiting belief of i'm stupid for example which comes up very often they are almost always extremely obviously intelligent people mm. like it's almost like like the people who aren't that intelligent don't have that fear and so the people who come in fearing that they're unattractive you're sitting there looking at them and going you're one of the most beautiful people i've ever seen what's going on we fear that we don't have these fears are so irrational they're opposites mm. of, of reality and we could say the same about yourself that you were literally a champion boxer and then you still you still felt that you know you still had to prove yourself when i think most people looking looking from the outside would go wait you've got nothing more to prove you've literally won international and national titles as a boxer yeah. <laughs> you know you you've done it you've achieved it um but i suppose it's how we feel ourselves you know with um you know we always constantly want more and more and we still think that it's not enough and we still need to prove ourselves um, but that, that's, you know, one of the interesting things which we'll talk about, you know, in your book uh, as well. But then talking about um, your second, because you're a therapist in London, I believe. Yeah. And you mentioned as well about cognitive hypnotherapy, that it's not, uh, you know, that you have a watch um, and you mm -hmm. hypnotize people. But uh, from reading your website, it, do you, so how does it work? So what can people expect from, say, a typical session? So if they want to book a session with you, I mean, I know right now, um, I don't know if you do it uh, online through, yeah. through Zoom. Yeah. So, okay, we can start with that. Do, do, do you do it online now through Zoom at, a, at least a time recording? Yeah. And how, how does it work then? Um, a session? I was actually seeing people on Zoom long before COVID because oh, wow. a lot of my clients are in the States and some people are housebound. Um, so Zoom was never an issue for me at the beginning of lockdown. But, but you're um, ahead of the curve there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was actually quite, it was actually quite a relief for me. Um, but, um, the what can people expect so the first session is i usually see people in blocks of three that doesn't mean that three is is you know done uh, that's just sort of how people start some for some people that's enough other for other people they want longer and it completely dips, um, depends on the person and, and what they're what they're seeing me about but um the first session we we work out what's going on we want to get an idea of um what the limiting beliefs might be at the root of the problems what the emotions are that are getting in the way what are the emotions that they're not prepared to look at um uh where did all of this potentially start we're seeking the patterns in their behavior and the patterns through their history so there's a lot of talking in the first session um and a dot connecting that goes on then what in the second session very often i'll use that session to dive into something deeper so that's where it might look more like what people would expect from hypnotherapy um, because somebody, the, the client will, unless they really don't want to, which is rare, will have their eyes closed as I'm speaking to them and leading them through some kind of guided visualization, which helps them to come to new conclusions and to see their issue and themselves and their lives from a different perspective. Um, the, what I think is, is most powerful about this kind of work is, 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 is that it's, it's actually about reorganizing the belief systems, the, the memories associated with things at the unconscious level. So rather than just change, trying to change the habit by changing the behavior at the surface level or focusing on the symptom at the surface level, whatever that is, we look right underneath that to what could potentially be causing it. And very often there'll be stuff during formative years, which, um, uh, which, which will be the, the root cause of, of, of their limiting belief, their fear, you know, the, the, the habit, whatever they've absorbed from, from their parents. And the thing about memory, this is the thing, I'm trying to see if I can be concise and I can't. The thing about memory is people think that memory is like a record of the past. Um, but we know now that that's not the case. Your memory is more like Chinese whispers. It's constantly evolving and changing. The metaphor I usually use is, is a photo album. People used to think you could just grab the photo album of your memories, open it up. Some of the pictures might be faded, but actually they're, they're going to be pretty much exactly what happened. Just a bit blurry that's not the truth at all what actually happens when we recall a memory is it subject subject to change depending on what we currently know and how we currently feel so memory recollection is more like retrieving an image file from your hard drive 
messing with it in Photoshop and then saving it back over the original. And so we're doing this all the time. And this is why our fears get worse. If somebody's got a fear of spiders, it starts out as a fear of spiders. But after 30 years of dealing with that and having panic attacks in Sainsbury's in front of people, it becomes a full-blown identity complex. And it all gets loaded into this original, um, the original memories of spiders, which were just then just scary eight-legged things. Um, so if, if, we can, if we can have memory evolving in this horrible way, which makes problems worse, surely we can also um, take memories and rewrite them in a positive way. And, and I can tell you from 10 years of experience as a therapist, we can definitely do that. When you can find the memories that are key in somebody's chain of experience, and you can actually work with the raw material of that memory, you can, you can get people to talk to their younger selves, you can get people to talk to bring uh, other important characters into memories, you can get them to say the things they never got to say to their parents, you know. Once people get the actual the opportunity to actually relive those moments better, change happens. So that was a very long way of explaining what no, might happen in session number two. But you, that's that's the more hypno part is that that's all very creative, eyes closed, imaginative stuff. No, that's a wonderful description. That uh, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that myself. <laughs> I, I, I will credit you because that I've. I mean, I think you're you're right. You know exactly what you know what you say about memory. That it's like a you know photo book and then photoshopping. It's constantly <laughs> changing, and it, was, it sounds great then because I imagine that once we can get you know through it and once it can help us, you know, it will just help people with their lives in general. Like to mention with parents and or in relationships or with friends or in their jobs as well. So it just doesn't just help people with one thing. You know, with one goal. I imagine it would help people in just about every aspect of their lives. Yeah, that's the thing. When you get to the root of issues like this, so people, therapy clients often come in almost with a shopping list. So they're like, okay, so I'm having panic attacks. And then I've also got this issue with my weight and I've also got this mm. issue, whatever. They've got a load of things. And what they're often expecting is for us to say, which one should we start with? Okay, let's work with that one. And then, you know, when that's fixed, then we can work on this one. Of course, it doesn't work by that. A, there is no fixing of this stuff. There is only re-reviewing, reimagining. And, um, and B, when you get to the root cause of those problems, almost always all roads lead to Rome, right? That every now and then there can seem to be two root causes for two groups of problems. But most of the time it all comes from the same place because it comes from our deep rooted, long-standing shame and fear about ourselves that we've never fully been able to grasp. When you work on that, everything changes. Uh, it, it's, this sounds almost too good to be true, but it isn't, you know, even it, it you, you start to, people report back things like I, I, I swear that the birds are singing more beautifully. I can swear, somebody said to me just the other day, I feel like I can, I could suddenly see a color that I was never able to see before. The world just seems different somehow. I remember when I got glasses for the first time, uh, which wasn't very long ago. And, and I, and I realized that it was like going from a crappy old TV to a new H, HD one. Um, and that's what, that's what therapy's like. It's like, Oh my God, I've been walking around with this mm. sort of blurred vision of what the world is and what I am. And something has shifted, which enables me to experience it entirely differently. Yeah, I can see clearly now that. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of, I mean, not completely, but I, myself, I felt kind of similar, I think, after my um, collapsed lungs and my, uh, the exams as well, that I was thinking, okay, now, you know, this really isn't what, what I should be focusing so completely on, that I should be just thinking about, oh, well, you know, life around me in general, rather than this specific goal of the leaving certificate that, okay, if I don't do as well as I want, you know, my parents aren't going to be ashamed of me, you know, they're still going to love me the same and I can do it again. I can, um, you know, I mean, they are important, but, you know, it's not the end of your life if, if it doesn't work out. Uh, well, because I've had I've done things then that haven't worked out, like with jobs then as well. Saying, but then things you know worked out as well afterwards. That you you go, okay, no, what you know? How do I deal with this? How do I um, you know either recover or resolve it? So, um, but yeah, no, that's that's a great way. So that's um, and you, you mentioned as well that you have international clients. You did before COVID. You have people yeah. in the states, yeah. So yeah. So from anywhere in the world, people can contact you and can set up a session if they wanted to pretty much or is that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the only, you know, they just need to be able to speak English, really. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of important to be able to talk about <laughs> things. Um, but yeah, no, I'll keep links as well and, uh, you know, in the, in the show notes then as well to 
um, you know, if people wanted to find out more. Now, also, you mentioned you wrote a book called, I believe, The Mind Monster Solution. Now, you mentioned this before, the mind monster that we feel like that is chasing, which is another great vivid description, kind of, that we feel like this monster is chasing us. Um, I, I, I suppose, why, why did you then... Uh, start writing the book you know what did you hope to achieve um when writing the book um i i just wanted to i wanted to introduce these incredible tools to the world um and and that was really it i mean the book changed enormously just like everything does um i i was originally i was gonna it was the hardback was called fight because my original plan for the book was to interview um, different fighters for each chapter and talk to them about fear and how they deal with stepping into the ring and facing, you know, this uh, o- obvious, you know, frightening experience. Um, but the, but then as I was doing it, I, I started dropping in bits of my own story. And I think my, my editor said, look, this is more important than those other bits. So get rid of those and just focus on your own story. And it became semi-autobiographical in that there was just a page or two at the beginning of each chapter, which documents my story of of fighting and then burning out and then what I did to get better um and yeah i wanted really it was all about wanting to show people that they can make these changes um and to get those the tools and techniques out not everybody likes techniques and tools and processes in books um but i wanted i wanted to make it a very practical experience so people like me who likes to see who likes to see the logic behind things and the the, the how to the abc of things would be able to pick this up and use it almost like a manual I'm not saying it replaces therapy, but um, the tools in there can make a genuine difference. And I knew when I was writing it, every single process, I remember thinking, if this is the only thing that somebody does when reading my book, they will make some kind of change um, because it's just about self-reflection. It's exactly what we're doing with the game Betwixt. In fact, the reason we're building that game is because Ellie read my book, my my my, my co-founder, Ellie, and she um and she, she said she read it twice. She said, her email to me said, the first time I, I devoured it, the second time I went back and made myself do the processes. And then I really realized how valuable that stuff is. And she had been researching both mental health and game design for, uh, for a long time, for four, four years in total, and was looking for somebody to work with to bring these sort of therapy resources into a game format. And she sort of proposed, awkwardly proposed the, the idea to me because she was had no idea whether I was going to just, you know, laugh her out the room. What she didn't know is I'm a lifelong lover of games. I love games, every single game. Um, so I was literally on the end of the phone going, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> this is a dream come true. Um, so that's, yeah, that's why, that's why we started making Betwixt. And, and we wanted to bring those techniques actually into an even better format than a book because it's so easy with a book to think, oh, I'll do that later. Or worse, I mean, what I do with technique kind of books is I start reading them and I hit a process I don't have the time or energy to do, to do it and think, oh, well, I'm not going to read past it because I'm doing this properly. And so I'm going to put the book down and I'll come back to it when I have time. And then I never come back to it. And I was well aware that people would do that with my book when I was writing it. But what we get with the game, because the, these processes get to be integrated into a conversation with the key character and it all happens sort of naturally and fluidly. It's not like you're forced to do any of them, of course. You can opt out if you want to, but it becomes much easier to, to take the challenge. Yeah, definitely. Because if I read such books and if, it's, if they say, you know, do these exercises or do these things or ask questions, usually I move past them, <laughs> if I'm yeah. honest. I'm, yeah. You know, when I continue reading. But with a game, and at least with Betwixt when I played it, um, it was like, okay, now they're really asking me to do it and you really need to do it to really get the best experience. And, um, and I really enjoy, you know, I, I love the game myself that I thought, wow, this is, you know, power, powerful stuff, you know, as well. So um, I suppose, you know, it's a great time then to talk about the game Betwixt, which you've spoken about as well. Um, so this complements your book then, is that, would that, you know, would that be correct in Mind Monster Solution? So you know, betwixt kind of compliments that book yeah, as well. It, or... It's like the next next level, really. I think the, there's a there's a whole you know my book's in four parts, and the third part is 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 play. Um, and in the play section of the book, I talk a lot a lot about metaphor and imagery and how these things speak speak to us so much more clearly than well. The change happens when we understand things on that kind of level, not when we understand things logically. And therapy clients turn up all the time saying, "I know exactly why this is happening." And I know where it came from, but I don't know. I can't, I can't, that doesn't stop it. You know, it's never about just 
learning um it's about experiencing things differently and so metaphor um a metaphor does that uh, to give you an idea well obviously you played but to give anyone listening an idea of what of what it's like it's out there it's it's a fantasy game so imagine that you found yourself in a strange frozen world where the air is cold and the snow is thick and the wind howls over an endless white plain now it would be easy to feel alone here if it wasn't for the comfort of a wise voice that speaks to you from somewhere in the back of your own mind you can get out of here it says I'll help you if you let me. And so together with this mysterious voice, you travel through the in-between, which is a dreamlike world that mirrors your inner reality. You discover that the very weather here is your emotion made manifest and that your thoughts control the world around you. And so gradually you learn the skills to tame the blizzard. You calm the waves of a raging ocean. In the bits that you haven't played, um, you save an enchanted city and you battle the monster you meet there, which you'll be familiar with from what we've been talking about already ultimately you learn that you found yourself here in the in-between for one simple reason the place was built to show you how to face yourself and walk away stronger um, so the game is divided into acts there are going to be we've, we've, we've we're testing at the moment um, uh, if anyone signs up on the website they will be able to test the first four acts which are the four acts that you tested um, but there are going to be 11 or 12 in total. We're, we're almost finished writing them. And, and with each act, it gets sort of progressively more challenging. So you led into the experience with the easier questions at the beginning, because we wanted this to be something, this is not for self-confessed self-help junkies. It's for everyone. Um, and the idea is that the game is absorbing in and of itself. So it leads you through this journey, which gets progressively more challenging. Um, like games do you know that's how games work um um but it but it's but it makes you reflect uh regularly on yourself i, I the my most enjoyable thing with this game and she's gonna kill me for saying this is that my mum, 75 year old um hardcore woman um who has never gone anywhere near any kind of therapy or self-help she hasn't even read the mind monster solution because she doesn't like She's like, read a bit of it. She's like, well, it's just not really my thing, is it, Hazel? <laughs> Never mind, mum, don't, don't worry about it. Um, but she's, I've been making her test this because I'm, I'm like, if mum can get it and if she can engage with it, then, then we're winning. And so I've been frequently calling her up and saying, hey, will you test, uh, test Dream 5? You know, it's Dream 5 is about understanding what your needs are and how you're getting them met. And she's always extremely reluctant. And then halfway through, she's waxing lyrical about some kind of, self-reflection that she's just mm -hmm. you know engaged with and she's always saying I, I never do this but this this game always makes me realize that maybe i should start um so yeah i can't remember why i started saying that but that's, that's the idea is it's for oh yes for it's not for people who see themselves as having a problem it's not for people who who want to fix anything it's just for people who want to enjoy the the, the process of, of of what is extremely fascinating which is getting to know your own mind yeah, no, de definitely. I, I, you know, I can relate with your mother when that way when I was playing it that I thought, yeah, no, this is really making me kind of, you know, find out that, okay, maybe I should do that thing that I've been putting off. And maybe, yeah, I can control things kind of around me or, you know, focus on what I can control and, um, you know, and th things like that. And then with, um, you know, Beth, you've mentioned that this game isn't just for, uh, you know, what did he say, like self-confessed, help junkies but also um you know there are people i know who hear the word game and they think oh this is for gamers so uh, this is for people who spend 100 hours playing you know games which um you know it's fine i do the adventure games podcast so that's fine but do you have to be a gamer now you mentioned your mother because she's not a gamer but maybe she is i don't know but so who who's this for them do you have to you know if you're a gamer do you get more from this or is this for Anybody for a general audience. So who is this game for and what kind of games or what can people, you know, how do people play it? Do you need to be good at games? Do you need to be experienced at games? No, not at all. I mean, the best way to describe it is it's a guided interactive adventure for smartphones. Um, and it, it, we, we take a range of, of different therapy tools and techniques from a range of different therapy approaches and weave them into a choose your own adventure story. 
And so anyone who remembers Choose Your Own Adventure Stories from our youth will know what I'm talking about. That's uh, when they were in book format. They were cool, mm. but extremely <laughs> limited. Um, and obviously the digital format for Choose Your Own Adventure branching stories is, is, is perfect because we can feedback people's responses. We can remember what they've said. We can, you know, the, the, the whole thing is this story that becomes your own. Um, and so we, when we started thinking about who our target audience was, we didn't know what, what the age range would be. So we tested with everybody from teens up to you know, 55 year old plus. Um, and we got a good response from the whole, the whole gamut. You know, the, 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 what we started to realize is that when we, we did a load of in-depth interviews with people um, after they were playing, and it was getting people of all different sort of levels or all different stages in the process of self-awareness to whatever the next level is for them. Um, so there is no prerequisite in terms of your, your awareness and there's no prerequisite in terms of, of, of what you'd be likely to do in terms of gameplay. You just have to be open to the experience. That's all there is to it. Um, I think it helps if you like the idea of a fantasy world, you know, that, but that doesn't need to be from a gaming perspective. It would be the same for anyone who likes to read fantasy fiction or just fiction. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's, it's a wonderful, we, the, our writer, Natalia Theodora, do, um, it's always find it strange calling him Natalia because I know him as Nassos. So he was born Natalia Theodorou, but his 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 uh, his name for, with his friends is Nassos, and he is an incredible writer. Just his descriptions are amazing. The world he builds. It one of the guys that's been one of our super testers all along. He said at the beginning of the process that one of the things he he he, he fears about himself is that he doesn't have the ability to imagine things. He doesn't have the ability to visualize. But his first bit of feedback was that this is, is the first thing ever that is making me clear visuals. And he was so excited um, to be able to see this space that he was engaged in. And that's all down to Nassos's writing um, and also the autonomy you get out of the gameplay. So that's why it's better than the book, because you are directly influencing this world. Yeah, no, I, I can concur that uh, the writing is is really good in it and i see the description that you have on the website is or that people have described it as lifeline meets lord of the rings which <laughs> i quite like that description but um but i as i was gonna say like, a surprising number of people have compared it to lord of the rings <laughs> this was not something we were going for but i mean we'll take it and yeah. um, people have also compared it to skyrim and mist you know people from the game world will recognize those sort of these Games around exploration and world building um, are coming up in the conversations and it's beyond our expectations. We've mm. been so happy with the feedback. True, but then it's also accessible to people who, you know, don't know what those are maybe up to, just for the general audience like your mother, who's mentioned the 75 <laughs> years old. So it seems to be like for fantasy uh, fans and gaming fans and just a general audience, which I think is... Yeah. Great, which is because it's not easy, I'm sure, to um, to make something that can just be used or played by everybody. Nearly. Oh man, none of it's easy. I mean, get, <laughs> getting the I, I, every time we start a, a dream, the, the the acts are called dreams. Every time we start one, I'm like, yeah, and then there's this great process we're going to put in this one. It's super simple. Yeah, this one's not going to take any time at all. And then <laughs> trying to turn it into a, a, a natural feeling conversation with, with this voice that you're talking to and getting it in there without it feeling like, and now we're going to do the therapy bit, which is <laughs> what we really want to avoid, um, just takes every single time. It takes sort of three or four times the amount of time I was anticipating. But it, it's very rewarding and very, it's, I love getting my teeth sucked into those, those bits. Brilliant, especially when you've got people like Ellie, who's got the sharpest of minds of anyone I know, really, and, and Nassos, who can then take what we put together, which is normally quite therapy-y, um, and then turn it into something that sounds beautiful. Right, no, that, that sounds great. I, I, mean, I think I should play it again, actually, now after, after this. Please do. <laughs> Just because, yeah, as you mentioned, like your book, the first time you're getting, you're getting to know it, you're getting to, uh, you know, to play it, and then the second time, I imagine you'll be experiencing it, that, um, you know, maybe on a deeper level. Um, but yeah, no, I should try it again. And um, so that that game is out for beta now, uh, is it? Is it our time recording at least? Yes. Yep. Um, and it, I'm sure it still will be. Uh, that will, we might have a few more dreams added to it in January. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, we, we we our beta is a progressive web app. So it's just just a website that you visit to to go through the content of it. It's not got the full design that will be there on the the end version. Um, we're currently working with our two brilliant developers and designer 
as well as Natos, of course, um, to, to move the thing over from Progressive Web App into a bespoke iOS app, um, which will be available uh, in the App Store and downloadable as this beautiful thing on your phone. At the moment, it's, it's just the story and the content, really, plus guided meditations and journaling tasks that you unlock by doing each stage of the story. So it's like an extra level of introspection that you can go to, really, for each of the topics covered in the dreams. So that's all there on if you if you go to betwixt.life and you click the sign up to play the beta, um, it will take you to uh, it will give you your you'll, you'll stick your email address in and it will send you an email giving you the information to, to play. And we'd love to hear from anyone who does. Very nice. So just when anybody can request access and then can you know, start playing it, then the yep. better at least. Cool. Yeah. And uh, do, do you know more or less when you might release the full version? Um, <laughs> we're currently we're currently um, fundraising for uh, uh, a pre-seed round, which which will help us to get the thing fully, you know, beautifully finished. Um, we hope to launch, you know, unleash the thing in its in all its glory on the world. It's sort of six months after fundraising, but we may, um, you know, that that could mean six months from now. And I I would hope that there'll be something out there that people can play um, by halfway through next year. Okay, so by halfway through twenty twenty one, then. Yeah. So yeah. But in the meantime, they can people can play the the one that's out there and also yes. sign up to the mailing list and then they'll get discounted. Uh, you know, blah blah blah. All, <laughs> all the stuff that normally happens. Um, definitely, they, recommend. If they come and make friends with us. We'll give them treaties. I definitely <laughs> recommend it because uh, I think I signed up and I look forward to playing the full version as well. And um, now, be, before I finish, because I don't want to keep you too long, and I will include the links to the game and to your book as well. Um, but then, just more generally as well. Uh, for people listening because at least the time recording it would be great if when this episode comes out that um, COVID ends somehow still not sure but even uh, with this year being so <laughs> challenging for you know just about everybody um, do you um, do you have uh, any advice for people uh, who are maybe you know suffering like psychologically as well like we spoke about the mind monster we spoke about cognitive hypnotherapy but I suppose uh, any general advice for people, you know, if they are in lockdown or if they are concerned, you know, either about themselves or family members or loved ones, you know, going through COVID because it's still unclear, uncertain what's going to happen. Um, I know myself this year has been challenging mentally, psychologically thinking, God, you know, here we go again, a second lockdown. It seems like it's never ending, although there seems to be vaccines on the horizon, hopefully. But just in, in general, do you have any, any uh, advice to people listening on you know, how to get through, hopefully it will just be a few months until things can get back mm -hmm. to some sort of normality and just in general, just how to get through this uh, challenging time we're going through? I know yeah, I, I do. Actually. There, <laughs> well, no, I, this, obviously people are asking that question a lot at the moment. And I think mm. that what we're going through right now is actually an invaluable learning experience because people have been thrown into this uncertainty and unpredictability, which is undeniably difficult for everybody in, in various ways. And in order to deal with that, we have to get... To, we have to start to listen to ourselves. We have to listen to our body. We have to pay attention to what, where our boundaries are and we have to get good at stating our needs, getting our needs met and putting barriers around things, um, which, which um, this year is sort of turbocharged that process for a lot of people. And that's not only true during, those needs are not only true during lockdown. We need those are skills for having a successful human life. Right. So for a lot of people who who haven't ever had to do that because they just get up in the morning and they go to their nine to five and then they finish and the boundaries are all sort of imposed on them. And, people, you know, they, they just go through their lives and everything seems to work out all right. Then now they're having to work it out for themselves. And that, although it's difficult, is a real gift because they'll carry that forward afterwards. So the tips that I would give are to. I mean, first of all, it's very boring. It, it's, you know, do make sure you're still getting outside and you're getting giving your body what it needs to stay healthy which is harder than than I think anyone anticipated my partner is a ex-olympic rower and yesterday he's he's sort of looking down at his belly and going we've got this it's like that it's tiny it's like two millimeters of extra power. and he's like where did this come it's never been here before <laughs> because he's just he's still training every day he's just the rest of the time he's sitting around anyway so we have to do the things that are good for our body, for our minds to feel healthy. So we have to get out and have walks and we, you know, we should still be doing the, the other fresh air and, and uh, exercise, etc. Boring. Um, 
the other thing is the boundaries so the most difficult thing i think for, for lockdown has been that the imposed boundaries have been taken away we're not getting on a tube in the morning to go to work in a separate place we aren't even leaving the house to socialize right now everything is happening under the same roof and that's a boundary nightmare um so we have to work out where our edges are and we have to get good at noticing when something feels not okay because if something feels not okay we absolutely have to get back to a feeling of okay that most people just write their feelings off like oh this doesn't really matter it's more important that I look after other people around me or this will pass if I just ignore it and go it will go away that's not true and, and right in this period in, in our lives we're really feeling the effect of that so we have to learn to tune in and know okay so I was being a bit grouchy today so why is that oh is it because I'm not getting enough sleep is it because I'm working too late is it because I haven't told that person that I'm living with that actually the sound of their toenail clippings on the floor is the most annoying thing in the world um you know we have to answer these questions and we have to act on them yeah no that's you know great great advice again and certainly with uh, you know myself when I was speaking to my mother a few weeks ago and she was asking how was I doing and my response just immediately without thinking was, oh, just general levels of anxiety now or something, just the same levels of anxiety. And because for me, this would become normal. And then I yeah. started to think, wow, this is, this is crazy. This can't be, this shouldn't be normal. So, but it's, you know, it was, um, so then I, you know, I worked on it. Okay, what can I do then to still be positive and still get through it and just not accept, you know, that, okay, so, some anxiety we're all going to have but just how to go through it and how to deal with it so and it's just as you said to realize how you feel that's just reminded me of, of a great little tidbit i can give you to finish sure, go this. ahead you, you said you, you just said you know what what can i do and this is really important so it was I, I unfortunately can't remember who it was who who put this study together so sorry um, amazing psychologist who i'm not going to reference properly <laughs> but there was a study done on <laughs> sorry, a uh, study done on self-awareness. They were trying to work out who was genuinely self-aware. And what, what they found was, of course, most people think they're self-aware, but when they, when, they, when they put people through the test of working out whether they actually were, I think it was something like 13% of people actually fit their criteria for self-awareness, whereas something like 76% of people thought they were. Right. So most people think they're self-aware and are not. And then they, they, they transcribed in, in interviews with these people from these two different camps. Um, to look at what the difference was between those who were self-aware and those who weren't. And one of the striking differences was this. So one of these groups of people was asking the question, why? And the other group weren't. Now, most people would think that those who were asking the question, why, would be the self-aware group. They weren't. The people who were not self-aware, but thought they were, were asking themselves why. And why you, we don't get answers to the word why, we just make answers up, which normally create more questions with more whys. And then we can go round and around in this horrible circle. Why is this happening to me? Why me? Why, you know, why, 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 why can lead you into a horrible state of anxiety because you never properly get the answer. Um, what the people who actually were self-aware were asking was what? What do I need to do differently? Basically, what, what, could, I, what could I make this, today, this, this, this failure into? what i'm trying to think of some good what questions but really what do i need to do differently so instead of asking why is my boss being such a bastard to me you ask what do i need to do to prove to my boss that i can handle this workload and those were the people who were self-aware so it's this lovely connection potentially cause cause causal but i don't know if perhaps it's action that creates self-awareness in the first place and if it's not that way around certainly self-awareness allows for more action so we need to do exactly what you just did there and ask ourselves what rather than why yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I don't, I don't always do it like, because sometimes I do, do get into a, you know, a spiral thinking, oh, poor me, poor me. But just at that moment, I thought, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I, I am now just general levels of anxiety that I've come to accept. And OK, this, mm -hmm. this can't continue. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and yeah, and then the, the last question, because we, you know, I've kept you a lot, a long time already, is uh, I've, I've spoken with, uh, you know, with friends of mine about, you know, keeping in contact that now, at least the time recording, Zoom seems to be the way we, it uh, seems to be part of our lives now. And um, at least I know I use it for the podcasts and you've been using it already, but other people mightn't be as comfortable using it. Um, would you still recommend, you know, to keep in contact? Because I know people, I have friends who live on their own. And one friend of mine said it was her birthday when we went into first lockdown, but she didn't want to talk to anybody, even on Zoom. She still doesn't like it, that she preferred to be mm. on her own. Um, I suppose everyone is different, but in general, um, in these situations, 
uh, how would you recommend that people still keep in contact when we can't meet people face to face certainly as easily as we could pre-COVID? And you know, would you recommend you know Zoom? I know this is again very general question, depends on how people feel as well. But how, what you know, do you have anything, any tips on how we can still maintain contact with people um, yeah. throughout this period? Yeah, I mean, okay, so there are a couple of things here. We're talking about connection. Connection is a mm-hmm. fundamental human need we all have. Um, and so, yeah, we do need to be connecting with people. If people don't like Zoom, though, mm-hmm. let's not underestimate the value of a good old-fashioned phone call. True. I do most of my <laughs> chatting with people over the phone. I speak to my mother for at least an hour every day. Um, we, we're averaging about five crosswords a day this year <laughs> because we just have these epic phone calls and um, take off the Guardian one and then start going through my crossword book. And that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to do Zoom just because that seems to be the modality of, of choice at the moment. But the other thing is that you, the, the, a sense of connection doesn't just come out of person to person contact. Obviously, that is important, but we can also up our levels of connection by um, doing other things by by being out in nature it's such a healing thing if you could mm. it doesn't even matter if you're living in london walk to a park be in the trees it makes a difference um the other thing is writing you know we can get an extremely powerful this is why there's so much expressive writing and creative writing um involved in betwixt because writing has been shown to rival talking therapy um when when done it hundreds and hundreds probably thousands of studies on expressive writing and people are doing things like improving their their rheumatoid arthritis um as a result of doing expressing right expressive writing tasks because writing is communication it makes us feel connected even when nobody else ever reads the writing so we aren't stuck if we don't like zoom we can we can go with the telephone conversations we can get out into nature we can use writing we can play a game like betwixt we can read stuff that that gets our mind in the right state to reflect and and there are lots of options um it's a challenging time yes but there, again it's just let's all, let's not all just say oh well i'm anxious but then i just that's just the new normal because it, <laughs> exactly. it doesn't have to be that way <laughs> Exactly. You know, there are many options there. And hopefully, you know, well, we will get through this. And hopefully in very, very shortly, we can get back to some sort of normality where we're not concerned that meeting up with people, we will get sick or we'll make them sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we have it, hopefully we get back uh, to normal then. And hopefully we can, you know, improve. Hopefully things can, can maybe improve that maybe uh, we can work from home more because we can see that it works better or whatever, you know, that things... Uh, are better um, now. Uh, so thank you so much for joining. First, uh, before I finish, then uh, now I will include links in the show notes. But uh, where could people find out more about you or about your book, General? Do you have any links that people can find out more? Um, first of all, about you, if. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, well, my my website is hazelgale.com. That's Gale like the wind, G A L E, and um, you can also find me on Instagram, hazel.gale.therapy um on facebook and twitter as well but insta seems to be the easiest um and medium i never use that anymore though um uh i will do at some point i'm just too busy to write articles right now um the the book the mind monster solution i mean it's it's on amazon obviously and it's on other sort of more morally sound um (laughs) vendors as well (laughs) if you put the mind monster solution in into google you'll find plenty of places selling that the game as i've said before is at betwixt.life um think I think that's that's all. Yeah, that's, <laughs> well, I'll include the links in the in the show notes and below as well, that uh, so people can find out more. Um, is there anything else that you would like to mention before we finish? Um, again, putting you on the spot. If if not, it's okay. But anything we haven't covered <laughs> that you would just like to say to anybody uh, listening or or anything? Hmm. Or have have you covered everything? We've covered a lot. I think we've actually covered literally everything. So. <laughs> Wow, I reckon that's, you're right. <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Hazel. It's been a you know delight talking to you, and um, and yeah, no, I'd love to you know talk to you again soon. And best of luck with uh, with the game Betwixt and with anything else you do, as um, as well with uh, with your sessions as well, and um, and with everything. So thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. So that was my conversation with Hazel Gale. I hope you enjoyed it. And a huge, huge thank you to Hazel for joining me. Uh, well, for both podcasts. And I'd really recommend that people check out her uh, text game and app, Betwixt, as it really helped me 
uh, with my own mental health, and I think we all need that now more than ever. And you can also check out her book as well, The Mind Monster Solution, and the links will be in the show notes. And if you like this uh, episode and this podcast, you can help this podcast in a number of ways for free. Uh, you can rate and review if you so wish on Apple Podcasts. You can also go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash Shorsha Speaks With and you can rate there in the different places and if you wanted to write a one or two uh, line review and if you want to rate five stars, that would be great. It would really help this podcast as well. Um, if you want to become a guest on this podcast, you can... Uh, do so. You can contact me at shorshaspeakswith.com forward slash be my guest and the link will be in the show notes as well. So next week I will be joined by Martin and Laura from the Null Point podcast as we speak all about the Eurovision. So slightly different next week. Um, so until then, take care everyone. Goodbye.